Episode 8, Scott Cook. You're listening to This Outside Life with Lori Kaler. Here we explore the lives of outsiders, those people who work or play in the great outdoors. At This Outside Life, we are committed to curing nature blindness and helping you step outside and step into wonder. Whether you like to enjoy nature by backpacking or from your back porch, there's something here for you to learn and appreciate about this amazing world we all share. Come with me and let's step outside and step into wonder in this Outside Life. Today, we are visiting with Intuit founder and former CEO, Scott Cook. Intuit is the brand that brought you QuickBooks, which many of you are using this April on your taxes. While Scott is well-known in financial circles and in the Silicon Valley, not many people know about another part of his life. While he's comfortable meeting with heads of state or hanging out at Davos discussing world financial matters, Scott also feels really comfortable in the great outdoors. So much so that he makes a point of getting together with old high school friends once a year and taking epic backpacking trips. They have been through Europe and the United States on various trips, which we will learn about. We will discover what gear Scott recommends, hear funny bear stories, and discover why he thinks it's so important that he gets away and gets his mind cleared in the great outdoors, and why this time is so valuable to him. I'm here with Scott Cook, who's well known for being the founder of Intuit, which brought us Quicken software and then QuickBooks and Quicken Loans, which you spun off, but uh, QuickBooks endures to this day. And he is a well-known figure in Silicon Valley, but not many people know that he has a whole nother life where he goes hiking once a year with a group of friends that you met from, well, you knew from high school. Yeah. No, some so, from junior high. Well, one elementary school even though he doesn't come anymore but and actually one's wife one of my my oldest friend from elementary school his wife comes with us oh my gosh so how did this get started whose idea was this and did you go hiking in your youth or would you get this idea um i think in college we did some backpacking trips various folks together but this group didn't coalesce till after college sometime in the 80s it coalesced. I think I remember a trip I did with one of the guys. There were just three of us, and that would have been maybe even in the 70s. And then by the uh, early 80s, it started to pick up a regular pace of doing it every year. Okay. And so where where was the first place you went? Uh, oh, and how many people were there? So on the, the first trip that was an antecedent, a direct antecedent of our trips today was with just three of us. It was in uh, Tuolumne Meadows in the Sierra, in the Yosemite area, the north side of Tuolumne Meadows. And I remember, among other things, we did glissading down snow and scree, uh, scree um, alluvial uh, fans. So it's like skiing, but you're on your, in your boots. 
Um, Aren't you on your bottom too, sort no, of scooting? It's, so it's steep enough that with the snow or the gravel, you can just kind of ski down. It's great fun. With not with your backpack on. No, without the backpack. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, and so that was your first one, Yosemite, Tuolumne Meadows, mm-hmm. and then now you've been on how many of these trips? Oh, I don't even know. I haven't counted. Uh, when uh, as a startup, when we didn't do very well and I didn't have any money, I missed a few for some years. Uh, but I've been pretty consistent on almost everyone since maybe 90, 98. So that's 30 years. And the first trip was three people. So who av- what's the number of people that goes on it now? What's the average group? It varies from seven to 12. And how long do you go for? Uh, a week. Oh, that's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what was your most arduous or difficult one you went on? I think it was the Trans-Sierra. So that's where we crossed the, the Sierra Divide from uh, west to east. And it was quite steep, quite a high pass. In fact, we only found out later that it's a high pass where one of the guys had almost died earlier, um, you know, 20 years earlier when he had attempted it. Uh, he had some bad weather and didn't quite have his gear worked out. Um, and so he was he really wanted to try again, but we didn't tell us till afterwards. He'd almost died on it. Um, <laughs> P.S. I yeah. almost died. Yeah, yes. um, <laughs> I take it there's another one. We did the Wind River Range. No, this would be this would take the cake for worst. Wind River Range in Wyoming. Oh wait, you're calling the most arduous also the worst. <laughs> well, you know, this would take the cake for worst most arduous. Okay. It was a good trip, but there was one day where you have to pass over Lizard Head Pass. And it's entirely exposed, no trees, no one rock to hide from in a, I don't know what it was, seven, eight, nine hour hike. And wind. We had gale force blowing, consistent wind. Oh, wait, and how many pounds are you carrying? You're all backpacking, right? Yeah, we're backpacking, that's right. Okay. The wind was strong enough, it blew down one of our hikers twice. It just <laughs> blew her over. Um, we were all leaning. You had to lean your body in at like a 50-degree angle into the wind to avoid being blown over. We're, on your question on weight, um, I carry the lightest pack because I'm probably the weakest hiker. So I would be in the low 30s. Uh, but uh, some of the other guys will be in the 40s, and one guy, who's the oldest of the group, carries 65, 68 pounds. Uh, uh, is he like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so go on, you're in gale force winds, gale it's in the wind river, and... and it doesn't... It's, it's not just the wind, it's the psychology of it. it never ends. The wind is just... And we weren't sure where we were going exactly, because it's up on a rocky plateau and it's it's just a bunch of rocks it really isn't a trail mark so i can remember us stopping multiple times to check with the gps and the map to make sure we're going in the right direction because you really don't want to go in the wrong way and then have to fight the wind back and we found for lunch the ones the only one large object that could block the wind in the entire hike we have to find at about lunchtime so we got behind this boulder so we could be out of the wind for a precious few minutes at lunch and how how many hours were you hiking that day in the wind? I don't recall exactly. Um, six, seven, eight hours, something like that. That's a long time. So do you have an average, like most trips, you figure, oh, we're going to hike 10 miles a day? Or do you or do you say we're going to hike into this place and then hang out for a couple of days? What's your usual? Well, it's a couple of questions. Um, the uh, distance also depends on the elevation gain. 
So a wide range we do between six and nine miles a day with packs. Once in a while we'll have uh, Beast of Burden carry our packs in on the first day so we can get a lot deeper. So we can do 12 or 14 miles on the first day if we're just carrying our day packs. And what what's your preferred Beast of Burden? Um, we've used mules. It kind of depends whatever the packer has. So we've used uh, mules in the Sierra and in the Colorado Rockies. We used, al- uh, not alpaca, llama one yeah. year. Um, and that allows us to get farther from people and much deeper. And then we pick up the packs and do the five to eight miles a day. Okay. Um, and then your next question was kind of, uh, we typically are going cross country as opposed to hike into a spot, camp there the whole time and do day hikes. We're typically moving most days to another spot. Um, what I happen to enjoy are the rest days. So we'll go to a spot and we'll have a day where we won't move. Hmm. And then we'll um, and then we'll move the day after that and hike to the next spot. I particularly like the rest days. <laughs> do you breed or yeah. and, and and in these areas, do you have uh, cell phone coverage? Or are you relying on sat phones or what? How is that working? Yeah, no cell phone coverage. So we'll carry a sat phone, but the quality of the sat phone coverage has gone down so much that we're going to not do that anymore. Oh, really? Why is that? Uh, I'm not sure why it's so bad. I think they, uh, I think because the sat phone carriers have been unprofitable. So they've, as the satellites die, they don't replace them as much. So on the last trip, we essentially had almost no useful connection. Well, that's kind of risky. Yeah, what's improved is you can send text messages over the sat phone system. And that has much less technical demand. So you can get text messages through just when you can't get voice through. Uh, okay. So that, uh, that would allow us to send a distress signal and things like that. And it'll send your GPS location. Huh. So um, I think we're just going to do that. So on these trips, what would you say is the most, some of the most beautiful ones you've been on? Oh, the Wind River Range run. Once we got over um, um, Lizard Head Pass, we descended down into this valley. And then I immediately took off my pack and went to sleep, just dead tired. <laughs> um, but then we had one or two rest days, and it's just beautiful, surrounded by alpine, scraggy peaks and beautiful meadows and warm stream. We could go swim in the stream, and it was it really is a heavenly place, the uh, Wind River Range. And much greener and lusher <clears throat> in the valley than would be in the Sierra, because they get much more rain than the Sierra got. So I think that that would clearly be one of the most beautiful. Um, oh, we did uh, the uh, the Teton Range in uh, western Wyoming one year, and that's spectacularly beautiful. There was a hike along a shelf high above this huge valley, uh, and you just had this valley down below that we hiked along for two days. Um, I've never seen the Tetons with any green on them. I mean, they seem so steep and so craggy, like, well, it's just all yeah. rocks and snow. Or were you able to... Yeah, when you have... look at the peaks, that's right. But we're we're not climbing the peaks. We're going around. Uh, oh, another great one, was, we did a hike in Canada, um, Mount Robson, which is Canada's highest peak. We didn't go on the, up the peak, but we walked around it a good degree. And, and where is that? Is that like near uh, Banff? Yeah, it's where? on the BC. Yes, it is near Banff. It's on the BC-Alberta border. Um, and there they have glaciers going into these alpine lakes right off Mount Robson. So oh, and they're unbelievable blue, aren't they? Yes, they're just like turquoise. Unbelievable blue with these huge snowy peak, Mount Robson, with these glaciers going into it. And occasionally you hear the glaciers calving. Uh, and again, it's more green and lush than the Sierra. So that was particularly beautiful as well. Uh, have you ever done um, European trips? 
Yes, we now intersperse every other year a European trip. And the European trips have the advantage, because the Europeans are so civilized, where you don't backpack. You hike from hut to hut. Oh, that's pretty nice. Yeah, which means you're not carrying 35 to 68 pounds because somebody, uh, because you're, uh, the hut provides the building, so no tent, provides the food, so you don't have to bring your food, provides the bed, so you don't have to bring your bedding. You're kind of glamping at this point. <laughs> well, these huts maybe are, wouldn't qualify for the GL part of, of uh, the luxury is not there. The uh, But it's so much better to have a bed and have real food yeah. and even serve uh, beer and wine, which we don't carry on our backpacking trips. So, yes, even though it's a hut um, and rustic, it's so we like that a lot. I, I, that's um, that's quite a crowd pleaser. Yeah. So then we just carry our changes of clothes and rain gear and stuff. So you're carrying, I don't know, eight pounds on your back instead of uh, 35. So when you're hiking these situations, you don't know if a big rainstorm is going to come up. And I've been up at Yellowstone on May 31st where it snowed. So what kind of gear do you bring? You're usually doing this in the summer, right? Uh, typically in August. In August. In Europe, we do it in July because August is crowded. Yeah. I'd say for decades we had none. I did backpacking trips from high school through... uh, I was taught in Boy Scouts that to expect it to rain every afternoon in the Sierra, you'd get a thunderstorm. And I think that was the leader's way of making sure we brought rain gear. But I have to say from those Boy Scout Sierra trips when I was a middle schooler, all the way up to the time I was maybe 40... It never rained when I was back. Oh. <laughs> it never rained. The only time it rained is if I went with Signy. And oh. Signy would bring rain and snow. But other, Signy, your wife. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, it never rained. So I, I had a stretch that's maybe unbelievable. Now we're much more used to rain. You go to Europe and it rains. We had Always. multiple days of rain on our last Europe trip. But you just put on the rain gear and keep hiking. You know, it's mm-hmm. summer. It's warm. It's not, mm. it's not cold. And we always carry rain gear. Uh, and um, so you've got um, spats, waterproof boots and spats, and you got your pants, and you got your rain jacket, and you put a, a rain um, protector over your backpack and just keep walking. Let's talk about gear. What kind of shoes do you bring that you can walk through a stream, um, to keep your feet dry? What kind of socks do you like? What, what kind of backpack do you use? What's, what's some of your favorite yeah, gear? Yeah, favorite gear. So... Um, well, I think you started in the right place with the boots, because if that's not right, nothing's right. Boots are heavily a matter of fit. Um, I have skinny feet, so I cannot wear most boots. But I found an Italian maker of boots that you can find over here at retail named Saliwa, and their boots are wonderfully narrow, and they fit. They guarantee the fit. They guarantee they will fit, or without hot spots or blisters, or your money back. And that sucked me into try them, and now I have three or four pair. Are they leather, or what are they? Yeah, it's a leather and nylon mix. And um, how do you spell that? S-A-L-E-W-A. Oh, okay. It's not a brand I'd ever seen, but I was reading a backpacking magazine on gear and that talked about them being highly rated and the, the guarantee. I thought, well, shoot, I don't fit most boots. I might as well get the guarantee. Yeah. So I bought now four pair, I think. And they're Gore-Tex, so they are uh, water repellent as well mm-hmm. and very comfortable. No, I don't need to break them in. So that's, yeah, boots have really advanced. Yeah. Um, then uh socks 
Yes, I have to do enough socks to fill the space in the shoe because I have thin feet. So I've got these alpaca socks from an outfit called Dahlgren, which is some local family-run sock company here in oh. the U.S. And they spin alpaca with some other fibers, and I quite like those. Those are what I hmm. wear every day. And then uh, Jay who and Linda, who are kind of trip leaders for this, they um, uh, found these socks called right socks that are actually two-layered. So they're thin like under socks. But there's two layers, so they slip over each other. Oh, so you won't get blisters. Right, uh, right. So I wear both of those. And, then, and did these guys organize the trip all the time? Like, yeah, they're the ones that Jay organize Linda, everything? Every year organized. It used to be Jay, because we were all guys for most of the history. And we were all guys. And that was good, but two things were happening. You know, I don't know, somehow all guys things got to be a little old. Uh, and the other thing is we had some of the guys dropping because of health uh, oh. and uh, fitness reasons. So one guy had a triple bypass. Uh, another guy ate too much. So we were losing folks. Yeah. So we uh, added some of our female classmates, and now we're half women. Oh, wow. Yeah, and women. they and you don't worry about them? Not because you know, you've got real long legs. I worry about them no, keeping I, up. I'm one of the slower hikers. Huh, uh, okay. Linda's very strong. Linda's quite strong. She uh, was a teacher at our high school and then became an L.A. sheriff on the search and rescue squad. Oh. So she actually carries a gun and a badge, though she doesn't bring those to along on the trip. <laughs> so she's quite tough. Um, okay. Yeah, no, we have. The women are, on some of our European ones, there will be occasional choices. And um, I'd say as many women, women take the tougher choice than as, as men do. Huh. So let's get back to gear. What's uh, your favorite backpack? So you, it sounds like you need something or you prefer something really light. Yeah, yeah, because I'm... Maybe not the strongest of the hikers. I've been progressively moving more and more to ultra lightweight hiking. So you have to pick. You really can pick equipment that literally can have equipment that does the same job for half the weight. Mm. So my backpack. Um, my son David went to a school where a high school where everyone backpacks. So they give you a backpack, and his backpack weighed. It's very comfortable, great brand. Weighed like eight point six pounds. Well, I'm backpacking things that are three pounds. Three and a half pounds. Wow. Um, and so you really can pick very um, much lighter gear. And uh, then it's very, you have to be very careful in what you bring. Some of the guys just chuck in whole boxes of food and things like that. Now I go through and figure out exactly what I'm going to need for each meal. I repackage it right in a plastic bag so I've got no cardboard. And then I consume all of it so I come back with no food left. Yeah. Because um, you just, everything you cart out, you had to hike with the whole time. Yeah. Um, Do you remember what, what the brand is of your backpack? I've switched few through a few. I use some of the reviews in the backpacking magazines and websites. I forget the name on the last one, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm quite happy with it. Okay. Um, and then um, uh, hiking sticks. We all now hike like the Europeans do with hiking sticks. You know, the first time I saw those, it was sort of close to home, and I thought, oh, give me a break. It's not like we're in the Alps. These are ridiculous. And then I turned the corner and saw the degree of difficulty on the Montero Mountain, and I thought, oh, dang, I wish I had a pair of these. And yeah. yeah. Particularly when you're hiking with a backpack. So if you make a misstep and you start to twist your ankle, which would put you out of commission, when you have four legs instead of two legs, yeah. considering each pole is a leg, you can catch yourself. And it's... It's a safety thing as well as a um, uh, convenience thing. So what brand do you use? Uh, it's a European brand called Lecky. L-E-K-I. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we all have poles. 
And do they telescope? Can you shorten them down yeah, and put them yeah, in your back? Yeah, travel, they will telescope down okay. uh, to about a third their normal length. Um, oh. uh, and so, yeah, that's an important enhancement we didn't used to, uh, used to bring. Hmm. Uh, and then they have now super lightweight tents that are just wisps of things, but, you know, weigh a fraction of what the old tents would, and super lightweight um, hiking pads and sleeping bags, so you can just keep whittling the weight, weight down. So I'll finish under 30 pounds. I'll finish in the 20s. And that's all your food as well? Well, when finished, that's food's all gone. Yeah, <laughs> but when you start out, you... Yeah, well, one of the big negatives is in the, in the United States, you have to carry bear canisters because we have bears. Oh, yeah. And the bears have the old way that we were taught in Boy Scout days was you put all the food in the bag and you suspend it on a tree limb. Yeah. Yeah, the bears have figured that out. Oh, really? So that, that doesn't work anymore? <laughs> you have to actually watch that happening. We were did a hike off, uh, this was a long time, this is 25, 30 years ago, did a hike out the, off the east side of the Sierra. Again, I think there were just three or four of us, a small group. Um, and we were maybe, we hadn't had a bear incident, so we were too loose. So I thought, my idea, hey, we'll put the food all on top of this giant boulder. No bear could climb up this giant boulder. I mean, giant, it was like a 16-foot tall boulder, really high. So we put all the food on top, and then we're sleeping away. And all of a sudden, we hear rattling around noise, stuff being thrown down, and the bear, of course, had danced right up to the top of the boulder. So we went yelling and screaming, and the, (laughs) the bears don't really want you. They want your food. So the bear went away. But we now knew there was a bear right around who knew where we were and knew our food. So then we, um, and this was probably 4 a.m. So then we said, okay, we got to do it the right way. We got to bear bag it and put it up in a tree. And there were instructions we'd come in with, the rangers had given us, that you got to find a branch that's X feet above the ground, that has no branch within eight feet above it or below it, that is no wider than this diameter, because if it's too wide, the bear will just go out and get it, Um, but no smaller than this diameter because the bear will just break it. So we found the perfect branch. With those constraints, so many constraints, there was a tree that miraculously had just one branch, like 35 feet above the ground sticking out, no branches below, none, no branches above. And not strong enough to support their weight. Yeah, perfect distribution, uh, a perfect diameter. We thought, oh my God, is this lucky? So we find it with our flashlights. We, we throw the rope over, and you've got to tie the rope to a rock and then pitch it over. And then you, you can't tie the rope after you've hung the bag. You can't tie the rope at the bottom of the trees. Bears have figured that out, and they just chew through the rope. So you have to balance it up in the air with no rope hanging down. All these concerns. We did it, and we were so proud. It was, the dawn was just starting to break. And we, we were so proud of it. We were going back to our tents. And then we heard, and the bear saw what we were doing, waited till we left it, climbed up the tree, and then walked out on the branch trying to get to, but the branch was the right length and the right diameter. And he would try to go out and the branch would start bending and the bear would back off. The bear couldn't get out. We thought, oh, we've got you now, bear. And then the bear kind of gave up on that approach, went down, lowered his body down to a little stub of a branch that was about six feet below and then held on to our branch with his front paws and went with his ch- and started chewing through our branch. Oh. <laughs> holding it with his front paws and pulling off chunks of wood till eventually the branch collapsed. With all the food. And you watched him do you this. Watched him. And then the bear went down and ate all the food except for one item. And so we, figured out, we finally figured out why there was no branch above or below. The bear had chewed through all of those branches oh. to get prior hikers' food bags. 
So the only thing we were left was a tiny little vial of ground-up Parmesan cheese. That was the only thing left. So we hike out that day and then went to the ghost town of Bodie, which is a... Oh, I've always wanted to go there. We had always wanted to go, too. And so we got to enjoy Bodie. But... So the bears have out fox. And we, then we went back down afterwards, and we went to the ranger who'd given us the sheet of instructions. Hey, what gives? We followed these instructions perfectly. And she said, yeah, some bears have figured it out. Wow. So bear canisters, how big are those? Well, big tissues are heavy because they have to be def- defend against a bear. So they're about, imagine something about a foot tall and about... A nine inches in diameter, so a cylinder, foot tall, nine inches in diameter, with kind of no uh, thing a bear could get a grip on. And it's made either out of uh, really tough plastic or mine's made out of carbon fiber, so I can save a few ounces. And bears can smell the food, they can throw them around, they can try, but they cannot get in them. So yeah. that's why, we, and so that adds several pounds to the weight. Yeah, I don't think people understand just how tenacious and strong bears are. I've heard of them in Yellowstone, Yosemite, just peeling back locked car doors like a, like a sardine can. Yes. Like that, that, you know, I, I smell your chocolate bar in the glove box and I will now have it. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. exactly right. They, uh, they have immense strength. Um, and the good news, as scary as they are, they're not interested in you at all. No. Um, they just want your food. And if there's food smells in your tent... Then they're interested in your tent. <laughs> have you encountered any other critters? Bears have been, we've had now multiple bear incidents. Um, now they don't get our food, so we've figured out how to make that happen. Other, um, well, I did, we had another bear incident. We were taking um, uh, Annie, my daughter, is now 25, said, Dad, I want to do a backpacking trip with you. Let's do a father daughter backpacking trip. I said, You really want to do this? Yeah, yeah, I really do. So we got four families, so we had four daughters, and then we got dads and moms, um, and we had a great time. We went up to our favorite lake that my high school buddies and I have hiked to many times. And what lake is that? Uh, Thousand Island Lake, which is on the east side of the Sierra. Several fascinating things happened. It was just one great to be doing something together with your daughters. Uh, And they're, of course, strong and tough. They had no trouble with any of this. And there was one night when there was a bear around, and there was a single woman. And by the way, we'll talk about women. There are now more women backpackers than there are men. In your, in your group? No, in the Sierra. When you go backpacking uh-huh. the Sierra, you'll run into more women than men, and more solo women than solo men. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I'd do that with the mountain lions and stuff. Yeah, the bears aren't there. No mountain lions there. There's mountain lions here. Yeah. There aren't mountain lions <laughs> there to speak of. And anyway, there was a solo woman who had stopped by. We talked to her at dinner. She went back to her camp. And then a bear appeared and started rustling around for food uh, and eventually got some food we didn't hang that wasn't very important. Uh, I forget. The bear really ate, oh, it was the hummus. The bear really went after the hummus but left all the good stuff. <laughs> so we started scaring them. Now we know you can scare bears off. You, get, so you take pots and pans and you just go, you make a lot of noise and the bear will run away. We didn't quite understand that 30 years ago. But the woman got scared terribly. And when she heard that there was a bear, she packed up and went away. Oh, so, yeah. So another thing that happened on that trip was we got up there and I brought a little bit of port along to serve, you know, kind of with the first dinner. And then the girls who were at this point all college students said, well, where's the wine? I said, well, this is backpacking. You don't carry wine. Well, geez, where's the wine? You know, we 
<laughs> so one of the dads said, well, there are packers that go through these pack trains carrying people up. And maybe we could talk to a pack train that's going down to see if they're going to come up the next day. And could we give them money so they go down to civilization, <laughs> buy wine, and we'll tip them when they bring it up. That's resourceful. Yeah, no, this was quite a resourceful dad. I had just, I said, no, there's no wine. We didn't bring it. But no, he was more <laughs> clever. So that's what we did. We found a packer, a woman. She said, yep, uh, I'll do that. And uh, so she came up the next day, and I was the one waiting at the intersection with... Uh, uh, for her, and we'd given her money to buy the wine, and then we gave her tip money when she got there. And so we had wine, and we had so much. We had boxed wines. We got what the girls drink in high school, in college, which was wine in boxes. Um, and we had so much wine, we were giving it away to passing hikers. So, uh, so that was a uh, that was a really fun trip. Uh, it's adds a whole different character when you're kind of showing this to your your daughter and none of the girls one of the girls had backpacked a lot um the other girls hadn't have you been on any trips where you thought this isn't living up to my expectations this isn't as good as i thought it was going to be trying did we have a i don't recall a failed trip you know maybe my mind has sweetened the Mm. history as minds do um i'd say on the, the negative side it's just uh, it's just I'm more of an introvert, and uh, everyone else are more extroverts. So night after night, they will be talking till late, telling stories, and I just can't take constant surroundings of people the way they can. So but the great thing is, thanks to Kindle, I can now retreat into my tent, and I can read light, you know, day or night on my Kindle, and Kindles are light, and the battery lasts for the whole trip. And so, you know, one of the things I really enjoy and I never get enough of is time to read. So on these trips, it's one reason I like the rest days because they'll go off and hike together and I'll stay in camp um, on a rest day and read. Um, So with no cell phone coverage, so you can just have uninterrupted reading. Right. Uninterrupted reading. It's great. It's such a gift. Um, And I remember one of the, you know, there's such learning you can get from the things you read, and one of the important things that shaped how I think about innovation and uh, in companies and industries was shaped by the reading that I did on one backpacking trip. We were at Thousand Island Lake. Oh, no, we were at a lake next to Thousand Island Lake. And I remember where I was when I was reading the book, a book by, uh, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, I think. Uh, and it's done by a sociologist who studies the sociology of science. Hey, this is a book from 40 years ago and it's quite famous and I hadn't seen it and it explained a whole bunch about how our inventions happened in the company and it added a theoretical understanding of why those why our competitors never followed us and so and the power of paradigm and scientists or business people not seeing a new paradigm because they were their whole thinking process was constrained by the former but by the dominant paradigm that they understand so why did uh, people not support Copernicus when he figured out that the Earth, in fact, rotated around the sun. And why did, when uh, Pasteur and others discovered the germ theory of disease, it was not followed or believed for decades by the mm. most eminent biologists because they were stuck in an old paradigm. And it really, it wasn't until the early 1900s it was really broadly endorsed, mm. even though it was discovered in the 1800s and the you know 1860s. So anyway, it explained a ton, and that was from reading, yeah. that uh, 
I was able to do on one of our backpacking trips. So when you get away from it all, you really get time to focus in and, yeah. and yeah. study stuff. And so you've never been on a trip where you're stuck with these people for a week. So is it ever like two weeks or is it just a week? Just a week. Just a week. And you, you've never been on a trip where you thought, I can't stand another day with this group or this person or this weather or... No, never that with any one person or anything. As I said, with the whole group, I can't take this much as much human contact with them. That's why we have a tent. And yeah. That's you typical know. of introverts. and They need uh, the downtime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also take trips lots of times around the world. You've met Kofi Annan, the Secretary General of the UN. You've had dinner with Fidel Castro. You meet all these people, but there's something about these backpacking trips that gives you something that these other trips don't. What would you say that is? Well, the backpacking trips are more or less the same group of people, dear friends. It's like old home week. Uh, And it's more physical. I mean, we're working together on a common physical objective where you've got a lot of work to do. Um, So it's not just the hike. You've got to take down the whole tent and camp, pack up, hike, do the distance, get there, get set up, you know, and do that and try to avoid the rain and then cook your meals. So it's tangible, hands-on, pride of accomplishment of personal achievement and group achievement. And it's downtime to think and read. Yeah. I carry a notebook and I make notes. I think about things and I take notes because I've got time to think. I've got mm. time to think while hiking as well. So things are going through my mind as I'm hiking. And I'll figure some things out while hiking that I haven't had the time and space to focus on. There have been some books out lately that talk about the fact the reason, you know, Beethoven, Steve Jobs, whoever goes on these long walks is because there's something in nature, there's something about just being alone with your thoughts and not connected with your phone or whatever that allows your brain to do more of the free thinking, problem solving, introspection that you don't have time for during the day. I agree with that. And we used to get much more of that in our lives Mm -hmm. because you used to have to walk from village to village or ride your horse or take a long train ride to get Mm -hmm. someplace or take, go across the country, uh, across the ocean. You take an ocean liner for two weeks. So there was real downtime for people to think. And you didn't have the distractions of constant television, constant internet, text messages, always at your fingertips. So you had kind of forced thinking. And we don't, in our society, get that forced thinking time anymore. Uh, And that's where backpacking comes in, because then you get really separated from all of those distractions. Can you think of any, like, magical transcendent moments where, you know, I don't know if you saw bighorn sheep, or it was an amazing sunset, or something that you just thought, wow. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a great one. I was just thinking about that. It's something, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, even in the suburbs, has lots of city light. Yeah. So we'd read in elementary school or middle school about the Milky Way. I said, what, this Milky Way? You look up in our sky and there's a handful of stars and kind of a dull gray glow at night. What's this Milky Way thing? I don't see any Milky Way. Because now in large cities, you don't see many stars because of the light pollution from the city. You go into the, you go backpacking in the mountains, you lay down and look at the sky and it's a feast of light. A feast of stars. Oh, the Milky Way, you can't miss it. This huge band of stars. And then the constellations. It's like nothing you've ever seen before when you grow up in the urban. Uh, just that is a... Sometimes we'll be up at the time of the Pleiades, the annual meteor shower. 
But boy, you can see satellites going by, the International Space Station. Yeah, it's just not like stars at all uh, in urban areas. And that's wow. a symphony of light. That sounds beautiful. Symphony of light. Have you ever felt that way about looking at the stars on a clear night? I have. In fact, I wrote about it in my new book, This Outside Life, Finding God in the Heart of Nature. I write about the science of stars, how they form, and how we are actually looking back in time when we see their twinkling lights. You know, the constellation of Orion? On his belt, we are looking at light from the time of the Crusades on some of those stars. To find out which one, you'll have to read the book. I also talk about campfires and the importance of community in our hectic lives. I talk about falconry, scuba diving, survival, and how to find the bluebird of happiness for your life. This book is available on Amazon, and the title is This Outside Life, Finding God in the Heart of Nature. And of course, my views in my book are not necessarily the same views as my guests. We are all on different paths spiritually. But if you feel closer to God outdoors, if you are filled with delight and wonder at how the world is made, you will love this book. It's This Outside Life, Finding God in the Heart of Nature, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or I've even seen it in airports. So go pick it up and take it with you on your next excursion, whether that's on your back porch or backpacking like Scott. There's also the opportunity to go uh, through some of the human stories of some of the hikers. So my, we invited my doctor to come along. He had not been part of the original group, but he also went to junior high and high school with us. Um, so he was very busy, didn't have a lot of time to plan. Um, and so rather than bring, and we each bring our own food, uh, which just makes it simpler. Oh, I've got to go. Do you cook this or is it all cold camping? Like it's just energy bars or whatever. So the uh, we do uh, cook. We uh, not for lunch. Lunch is cold on the trail, um, and you know snacks and nuts and crackers and cheese and salami things like that. But breakfast and dinner we do cook. For dinners, uh, the guys have got a very convenient system. Rather than dirty pots and pans, which you then have to clean, oh, which you then have to carry and they weigh stuff. We bring a jet boil, which is just a device that's gas power that heats water very rapidly, and then you bring the dehydrated dinners, which are an aluminum pack. You slice open the top, you pour in the boiling water, you let it sit for anywhere between 11 and 15 minutes, and then you take a spoon in and eat it. Yeah, it's perfect. So you dirty nothing, because boiling water doesn't dirty anything, and the you don't clean the, the foil bag out, you just kind of rinse that. Yeah. So there's no soap and water wash up, so it's very lightweight, and so and the dehydrated meals are are uh, acceptable. Some of them are, are pretty decent, actually. Yeah, yeah. So there was one year when uh, there's one dehydrated uh, meal that really gums up your all equipment. I think it's a, like a lasagna, and the cheese or cheese-like <laughs> stuff in it just sticks to everything. And then the coloring of the lasagna causes any of your plastic silverware to turn red. And it's... it's so Jay had... had uh, eaten one of those and was really complaining about it. And then he looked into his, the next night, he looked into his collection and he'd brought two of those. He was like, oh shoot, why do I have two of these? Oh my <laughs> God. Well, then we snuck in 
and replaced his other ones with lasagna. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> the third night he looked at it and all he found was lasagna. Going, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> He <laughs> started laughing. And there was another hike. We were, this was in Europe we were hiking. And we stopped uh, during the middle of the hike at one point for a, a quick rest and snack break and water. And then when we started, everyone was hiking off. And I noticed Jay had left his poles. So I quickly get his poles and I scrunched them all up. They compressed in about one third the size and kind of hid them. So he didn't see that I had them. And we hiked on for a long distance. Miles. Two miles, maybe. And then he discovered that he had his poles. Now, I had shown the poles to everyone else, so they knew I was holding his poles. And then all of a sudden he goes, oh, shoot, oh, my poles, oh, my God, oh, where, oh, I'm going to have to go back to the rest stop. Oh, that's Miles. <laughs> How long did you let him go on like this? How long did we let him twist in the wind? I, I, it was everything I could to not show him the poles right away. So I, he actually started the hike, but we... He maybe got 10 feet on the hike back. And then I said, Jay! Oh, <laughs> poor guy. He must have wanted to strangle you at that point. <laughs> then there was, uh, okay, my doctor came, invited him, hadn't backpacked, I think, ever. Uh, the busy guy didn't have the time to plan everything, particularly plan the food. So he figured out his daily caloric requirement, figured out. How, as a doctor would. As a doctor would. <laughs> figured out how many calories were in a cliff bar and divided cliff bar calories by his daily and brought that many cliff bars a day. That's it? Yes. Now, wasn't he really constipated? After you eat three <laughs> cliff bars, you can't eat another cliff bar. You really cannot eat and he had all all breakfasts and dinners were cliff bars. So after three of them, he was willing to trade for anything. But nobody wanted cliff bars. Fortunately, this was at a time where we were not as weight conscious, so we had everyone brought too much food. So we could keep him alive on our extra food, um, but he was dying because he couldn't stand another cliff bar. That's hilarious. Oh, so he had never been backpacking, but was he in shape enough to do this? Yeah, he's pretty athletic, so okay. he was in shape. Uh, yeah, you, yeah, it's hard. You don't really want to invite someone who's not reasonably athletic. Yeah, yeah, no, he's a great guy. He's really central to the. But he will no longer eat a cliff yeah, bar. He bring any cliff bars now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a. Another story. Has anybody ever gotten wounded? Oh, wounded, yeah. You know, we've been pretty lucky on the health side because you are far away. And it's, you know, there's not a clinic around the corner. Do you guys bring a first aid kit or? Yeah. Uh, John, the doctor, uh, comes with an extensive first aid kit and stuff that you and I wouldn't be able to get because he's a doctor. Morphine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's got bigger (laughs) drugs than we would carry. Uh, and now when we do the Europe trips, his wife comes, who's also a doctor. So we'll have two doctors. So we're well, well covered medically. We've had, uh, you know, was, there have been some foot problems, blisters. There's also one of the hikers who's a very strong hiker, Linda. One day in one hike we were doing the uh, going up to Half Dome. And she just in the middle of the trail just couldn't go anymore. She just needed to sit. And so we split up her pack and divided the stuff across the rest of us. And then she was fine the next day. We've been pretty lucky as I think about it health-wise. Yeah, so nobody's twisted their ankle, oh, you have to carry me or anything like that? Correct. We've never had to carry anyone out. I think the closest was Linda's where we needed to carry her gear, but not her. One of the more dramatic trips was the uh, trip up Half Dome. Um, So we started in Tuolumne Meadows, not in the valley. Most people start in the valley. So we had four or five days of hiking to get to 
the base of Half Dome. Not the valley floor, but kind of the base. And then Jay very cleverly had timed everything so that we could go up at a time. Because you, when you get to Half Dome, you're, uh, as a non-rock climber, you go up what is a flimsy set of wooden stairs with cables. Yeah. Um, and there can be a long line and you can just be stuck in traffic. Well, Jay figured out when that is and isn't and timed it so we got there when there was no traffic. Nice. Yeah, fair. And then you go up and there's almost no one up top because we're kind of between the shifts. Um, and it's dramatic at the top of Half Dome. That was yeah. a, uh, just a dramatic uh, view and a view down. We have some great pictures. It was really a, that, that's a, that was a real plus and so well planned. Jay's quite the planner. And Jay and Linda together are very, one thing we all have faith in is the planning will be perfect. Mm. Everything will be anticipated. I think it's one reason our injury and our we haven't we've avoided bad consequences because the planning is so thorough yeah so how do they plan if they pick a route or a place where they've never been before yeah if you pick a route you haven't been to there's uh, online resources so you can mm. find other people have mapped the route described each uh lake each turn so they do a lot of homework and we'll do we'll, they'll try to talk to the people who've done the route before which you can find uh-huh. online um so yeah it's been very thoroughly researched and uh, we carry gps with us and they do the mapping so um you really got to admire the work they put in in advance that makes a big difference do you divide responsibilities that way like okay you guys plan the trip now we have a doctor what about a flora and fauna guy like (laughs) divide the responsibilities so they have the responsibility (laughs) (laughs) no they're so good at it and the rest of us couldn't hold a candle um i'll try to bring the alcohol and the wine um which we will consume the night before and the night after the trip. So mm-hmm. we have celebratory dinner the night before and the night after. So I'll bring the wine. So that means you don't have to drag it up in your backpack. It's Correct. in the car. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we have, on those trips where we'll have an, uh, pack animals carry in stuff, then mm-hmm. I'll bring uh, alcohol for the first night because the pack animals take it in. So I've had fun bringing in margaritas and things like that mm-hmm. with salt. And and the... Uh, the some of the women from LA, if we have pack animals, we'll bring in sushi so we can have sushi. Wow, fancy! Oh, oh, there's another story I should mention the story of Reed. So, one of our trips where we had a pack team take us in, uh, this I think we went 14 miles in. The uh, pack train of mules uh, has a packer who uh, leads it, who's on a horse and leads the mules up to the agreed destination, and then he or she will stay overnight. And then we will continue to hike on, and they will go back with the pack train. Mm-hmm. So after we pitched camp and was getting ready for dinner, I heard from some of the women, oh, we should have Reed come and dine with us. You know, Wouldn't it be great to have Reed here for dinner? And I said, no, this is us. We're together. Because we really have never done this with anyone else. It's just mm-hmm. our group. And they said, no, we've really got Reed's all by himself. And I didn't figure out what was happening until I went and invited Reed. And then I noticed, I hadn't really noticed this before, that he is right out of central casting for Mr. Cowboy. 6'4", chiseled triangle chest, <laughs> handsome, and the at this point our 60-plus-year-old set of classmates was quite, female classmates, was quite intrigued by Reed. <laughs> so he was the tall, silent, tall, strong, and silent type. They're like the Marlboro Man. Yeah, like the Marlboro Man. But, <laughs> to, but they became older and grittier. This yeah. is a young, <laughs> okay. you know... 30-year-old. Indiana Jones. Like yeah. 
So invited Reed over, and he was just going to cook a can of beans, I think, on a, on a fire. And so we shared some. We had sushi, and we shared that with him. And then um, the, all the Twitter to talk to Reed, and they got him telling stories. And some of his stories were fascinating. They were a little depressed when they figured out he was the age of their kids. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it just and he told a fascinating story. He comes from a ranching family in the east side of the southern uh, San Joaquin Valley. Okay. The east side, so far from any city. Uh, a large ranch, cattle ranch. Um, and he grew up there, and his parents grew up there, and his grandparents grew up there. And he tells a story, I guess, of his grandparents or great-grandparents who happened by luck to have driven a wagon in 1906. When was the big San Francisco earthquake? 1906. Yeah. They'd driven a wagon from, you know, this is 200 miles away or 150 miles away to San Francisco to bring goods to trade to buy. And they were there for the earthquake. And, uh, or maybe they got there the day after the earthquake, but they were there. And so many stories about that, but one that he tells is they saw next to Chinatown, a little young Chinese uh, immigrant boy just sitting on the side uh, side of the road in San Francisco, just crying and crying while Chinatown was in smoke. Mm. Crying and crying and crying. They concluded, they tried to talk to the boy, he didn't speak English, and they concluded the boy had lost his family because everything was in ruins. So they said, what are we going to do? Well, shoot, chuck him into into the wagon and we'll go back to the ranch. So they took him back to the ranch and they raised him. He became quite an avid rancher and horseman and all that. And you know, I, you know, when he was a teenager, um, they asked him finally, "Well, tell us what happened to your family and to your parents." He said, "What? Well, you were crying. You know, the family was." And he said, "No, my family was fine. I was crying because some boys just beat me up." Oh, are you serious? Yes. And the 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 grandparents said, "Oh my God, oh my God, what did we do? Well, we'll take you right back." He said, "No, no, I don't want to go back. I like this here. <laughs> this is your my family." <laughs> so, That's incredible. That for a story. <laughs> Oh, my gosh, his poor parents must have been beside themselves. So uh, there you go. That was the story from Reed. Oh, wow. Huh. All right. Yeah, I bet uh, sitting around the campfire you have good stories. But you can't do a campfire anymore, can you? Well, that's one thing that we really miss is um, many places you can no longer do campfires. Yeah. 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 So... Um, do people, when they're sitting around at night, do you... Anybody ever tell any stories that they've never told anybody else because, hey, I'm here with friends, I'm out in the wilderness, people let their guard down? We do get some of those stories that I'm not sure we're the only person, but we may be the only people outside a very close group to hear. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one woman, classmate from the adjoining high school across the valley from us, who married the preacher's son at the big Baptist church, the big Baptist church. This, this uh, pastor created a huge congregation. And uh, Mark grew up in that, and she was dating Mark, and then she, they moved to go to Humboldt State, I think, or Sonoma State, and they were living together, the, um, our friend who backpacks, and her then boyfriend, unbeknownst to the parents, the pastor. And unfortunately, during some sort of prayer session where you pray for others, one of the well-meaning congregations said that she prayed for Mark because he's living in sin with this woman. In front of everybody. In front of everybody and Uh. in front of the pastor. So then the pastor and wife 
drove up immediately and basically demanded that she immediately marry Mark or they would like disown her. Wow, that's, <laughs> yeah, not the way to go about it. Not the way. <laughs> so, and she tells this story. I had no idea. And they did get married. Um, yeah, and they've been married ever since. It usually doesn't work out that well. Yeah, <laughs> Marriage work. under duress. <laughs> no, they've been married ever since. Now, he also backpacks. He backpacks with some of his buddies, but they call it the macho man. They kind of hike in with too much weight a short distance, and they drink a lot and stuff. So they don't do our kind of <laughs> you know, camp-to-camp lightweight stuff. Mm. So she comes with us, and he huh. goes with his macho man buddies. Huh. Well, that was great. Thank you for those stories. That's really cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts on... Uh, why you think people should get out with friends and go backpacking? Yeah, get out with friends. So many ways to enjoy the world when you get out with friends. Yeah. yeah. So one thing is, having a trip on your schedule like this, I think all of us enjoy the way it goads us into training. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because you have to get in shape to do this. So yeah. what do you do to get in shape for this trip? You know, I think there are some people who stay in great shape all year long. Mm. I may not be one of those. <laughs> So it's really helpful to have this on the calendar. So I got to start working out three months in advance to start hiking and hiking more and hiking more distance, which is a good thing. And in fact, I really have learned to enjoy the time out hiking here for the same reasons. Yeah. For the ability to think, the ability to put on a podcast. And so I think that's part of the enjoyment that we all feel is it gets us out hiking here locally several times a week, especially in the last few weeks to get ready. Do you put on a backpack and put stuff in it to carry a load? Uh, I will if we're doing a backpacking trip. In the final week, I'll throw a backpack on just to get the shoulders and hip bones a little bit used to it. Um, If we're doing the Europe ones where we only carry eight pounds, then I don't bother. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on This Outside Life. And I hope you've inspired millions of people to go out hiking and get healthy. Lori, it's fun to talk with you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed our visit with Scott as much as I did. I loved hearing his stories about all his adventures. And he's such a great example of even if you are crazy busy, you can carve out time for getting away from it all. It's important for reflection, creativity, and sanity. And don't forget to check out the website for the show notes and Scott's gear guide. I put together a guide of all the gear that he mentioned that he really thinks is great for taking on trips. Thisoutsidelife.com forward slash Scott Cook. S-C-O-T-T-C-O-O-K. Also, if you want to hear other outdoor adventures about backpacking, falconry, whitewater rafting, and finding the bluebird of happiness for your life, you'll enjoy my book, This Outside Life, Finding God in the Heart of Nature, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you like to buy books. That's all for today. Don't forget this week to step outside and step into wonder in this outside life. See you next time.